Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. This week... We are talking about insulin. Mm -hmm. I know very little about insulin. I know that diabetics use it. I know that Martin Shkreli upped the price of it astronomically and made it very hard for diabetics to obtain. Beyond that, I don't know much. So how does insulin work? So insulin is naturally produced in the pancreas of healthy people. It's a hormone that promotes the uptake and storage of glucose and other energy-containing molecules, but mostly we're going to be focusing on glucose, so sugar in the blood. And then the opposite of insulin, how you can think of it, is glucagon, and glucagon promotes the release of these nutrients. So it promotes the release of glucose from these places where it's stored back into the blood so that it can be used. And catecholamines, glucocorticoids, and growth hormones from the pituitary gland actually also promote the release of these nutrients. Between insulin and glucagon and the other counter-regulatory hormones, blood glucose is kept in a healthy window of 70 to 120 milligrams per deciliter for healthy people, and that's regardless of food intake. So you can eat broccoli or pizza or pixie sticks, as I often did as a child, and... (laughs) Your body can usually take that and regulate it and break them down into their component complex carbs and then monosaccharides, so glucose, galactose, things like that. And then the glucose in the blood is taken up by the pancreas. The cells release insulin into the capillaries in the liver, and then the other energy-storing tissues receive this insulin. And between meals, the blood glucose levels decrease, and then glucagon is released so that you can release the glucose so that your blood sugar stays level between meals. Okay, so our body's basically just helping manage the ebb and flow Mm -hmm. of the amount of sugar that we have. Okay. Yeah. So why do diabetics need to take insulin? There are two kinds of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes mellitus is also called insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus or juvenile diabetes. This is when the specific cells in your pancreas don't produce enough insulin on their own, and so you need to have synthetic insulin so that you can Mm. regulate this. You still produce glucagon, and so you're still releasing glucose into your blood and actually... Diabetes mellitus means sweet urine because back in the old days, they would collect urine in a flask and they would actually like drink sips of urine. Okay. They would drink sips of urine to see how healthy you are and they would look at it and they would examine the color. That used to be the sign of a doctor's office before the two snakes Hmm. wrapped around the thing, which I can't remember what that's called. Oh, the staff. Yeah. I have... Yeah, I have it tattooed in my medical bracelet, and I don't know what it's called, (laughs) but I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, so the urine flask used to be a sign of that, and so they knew that there was excess sugar being produced in the urine of diabetic people way before there was anything you could really do about diabetes. And then type 2 diabetes causes hyperglycemia from insufficiency of insulin production in the face of insulin resistance. This is the type of diabetes that happens when you consistently eat too much sugar and so then your body becomes insulin resistant had i continued to eat too many pixie sticks well into my 20s i could have ended up diabetic but for a normal intake of even a little excess sugar your body can usually deal with it 
what happens if you don't have the right levels of insulin in your body? You'll keep having a glucose flow through your blood. You'll excrete it because you're not using it in a timely manner. And that makes the sweet urine. That makes the sweet urine. And you okay. essentially start to starve because you don't have anything that's being stored for energy. Before the discovery of insulin, little kids would just be really, really thin if they had juvenile diabetes because they wouldn't be able to store I mean, they stored some, but not enough to really survive, and so they would just slowly starve to death no matter what they were eating because they didn't have insulin to take it up into their tissues and use the energy. Ugh. They still had glucagon being released, and they still had all these other counter-regulatory hormones being released. You just have too much glucose, and you're not really doing anything with it. What happens to the body when it's starving itself, basically, of that energy production? It's starving itself because there's glucose in the blood, but it can't do anything with it. And, like, mm. you basically run on sugar. Like, carbs break down into sugar. People like to say that you can cure cancer by eating less sugar because the cancer cells thrive on sugar, which is not true. You will just starve yourself before you starve the cancer. Ugh. But, yeah, you slowly starve to death. You can't store glucose, you can't store amino acids, and you can't store lipids. And so when I was saying that we're going to primarily focus on glucose and we're going to be looking at hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, you also can't store these amino acids in the lipids. And so you're just not getting anything from the food you're eating. You're eating it and it's just passing through. With no payoff. With no payoff. And then the kidneys get overworked because there's so much glucose in the kidneys that they can't process how mm -hmm. they're usually supposed to process. And so one of the first signs that you often see in somebody who starts to exhibit diabetes is they're thirsty constantly. They cannot get enough water because their kidneys are constantly being overworked. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then the liver will break down fatty acids into ketone bodies as fuel for the brain because you're not getting enough glucose and you're not getting enough fuel for the brain. And so then your fatty acids start to be broken down. When ketone bodies become acid in the blood, you end up in a state of metabolic acidosis called diabetic ketoacidosis. Some people might recognize this ketoacidosis or ketosis as something that people try to exploit for dietary purposes now where they try to get themselves into ketosis. That's what it is. I've heard that. Yeah, a podcast that I watch, the H3 podcast, mm -hmm. one of the hosts on there was trying the keto diet, mm -hmm. and they were talking about how Joe Rogan is just constantly in a state of ketoacidosis. Yeah. And it's just because all he does is eat meat and nothing else. So all you're doing is you're eating meat and you're eating fat when you're going into ketosis that you control. If you're in ketosis, you can easily come out of ketosis by eating a cracker. But diabetic mm. ketoacidosis can't be dealt with as easily and can actually become fatal. Patients can end up in a diabetic coma and die because of diabetic ketoacidosis. And is that because the body's not breaking things down, it starts freaking out and then it just starves the brain of the energy? The brain isn't being starved because the ketone bodies that are being broken down from fatty acids are being sent to the brain. But when the ketones mm. collect in excess in the blood, it causes ketosis. Okay. Yeah. But it's basically your blood's poisoning yourself. Pretty much, yeah. You're being okay. poisoned slowly because your blood is becoming acidic, but you're also just starving slowly no matter what you're eating. You're starving and you're thirsty constantly. This does not sound like a fun mm -hmm. time. And so before the 1920s, when insulin was discovered and then was mass produced for therapeutic use, children would just die. Juvenile diabetes had a fatality rate of 100%. What? 
And it's not that you would get it and then you would die within months. I think that you had about four years of life that they would predict you could get after diagnosis. But kids just didn't survive. They would just slowly fade away. They would just slowly starve Because they didn't know how to treat it in any kind of capacity. So it was just a death sentence, essentially. Essentially, yeah. One of the ways that they did try to treat it, which wasn't a cure, but it was just to try to extend your life and reduce your symptoms, were starvation diets, actually. They were called sugar-free diets, diabetic diets, but they just kind of seemed torturous in a way because I'm not sure how these even worked because if you don't have enough insulin and you're not taking up glucose, amino acids, or lipids, like, you're just you're just not taking it in. I don't know how to work around that because those are the things you need to survive and your body's not taking right. them up. But they would give them these diets and physicians who would recommend these diets said that it did reduce symptoms, it did increase patient longevity, but I'm not sure by what mechanism it worked. But they would force people, mostly children who were already starving because of this biological dysregulation, to go on a low-energy diet, and they told them to exercise. No, that's a bad idea. Like Their thought before they fully understood the role of the pancreas was that the metabolism maybe was being overworked, and so they were trying to relieve stress on the metabolism. They would just have them eat fried eggs, I think, and spinach, and just like... Not a whole lot. So they weren't eating a whole lot. They were starving. They were reducing carbohydrates in particular, although it doesn't seem like anything would have an effect from what I could tell. You're just not taking up anything. So I don't know why reducing carbohydrates would have any effect, except that it might reduce the amount of glucose that you're taking in. And so you reduce the amount of glucose in your urine. But that really seems to be the only thing that makes sense to me that they were seeing was that there was less glucose being registered in the urine when they would test it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we need carbohydrates Mm -hmm. for our brain, for energy, Mm -hmm. period. When the Atkins diet was a really big thing in the late 90s, early 2000s, I had a teacher who was very overweight. He did the Atkins diet, Mm -hmm. and he was just constantly zonked. And he was our choir teacher, and so he's, like, teaching us to dance and stuff, and he just literally couldn't do it some days. And it's like, that's because you haven't had carbs in three weeks, Mr. A. At some point during the Atkins diet, they expect you to start using the stores of energy you have in your fat, and that's kind of what they're doing is they're trying to starve your body of carbohydrates and sugars so that you'll start using the stores of energy that you have. And runners, Mm -hmm. when they hit the wall, if you've ever heard that, it's because they've used up all of the immediate sugar that they have, and now they're converting to something else. And so when they hit the wall and get their second wind, they're starting to not use the sugar that was in their blood, but they're starting to use energy that was stored previously. And so that's the idea behind the Atkins diet is that once you starve your body enough, Mm -hmm. it'll start burning into the fat storage. Essentially, yeah. They didn't have any idea that this would happen. I don't think they were just like, we have to reduce the sugar in the urine because this is the one quantifiable thing that we're seeing. So let's reduce the sugar in the urine. I don't know how it was supposed to work, but patients did die because they were being starved. There was actually a blind 12-year-old who was in one of these starvation diet, diabetic hospital wards, where this is all you would do is you would just be in the ward and you'd be monitored and you'd be on this diet. And he kept having sugar show up in his urine. So the doctors and nurses thought he was getting food from somewhere. Somebody was bringing him food. And so they kept cutting back the amount of food they were giving him, the spinach and eggs that they were giving him, until he fucking died from being starved externally and he weighed less than 40 pounds. 
Oh my God. Why? But, but Because they were trying to cure his diabetes, but obviously they totally lost sight of what they were trying to do because they were just torturing this kid. I get that they thought they were being helpful, but at some point it's like, maybe there's something wrong with the body, not what the kid's doing. Yeah, yeah. maybe there's something wrong with your theory. But then, insulin was made widely available in 1923, and children were literally pulled back from the brink of death. I've seen pictures where these skeletally thin children go from looking like they're about to just keel over to healthy in a matter of months. The children mm. wrote to the discoverers of insulin, and who did or did not discover it is actually kind of disputed by the Nobel Prize system and all of that. Oh, interesting. But the people who were given credit, these children would write to them and they'd be like, I was dying and now I'm happy and fat. They put on so much weight and they just had such increased quality of life. So it is a blessing, but as with all things, it can be deadly if you take it improperly. Yep, the dose makes the poison, so I hear. One of the first ways that we started poisoning people was shortly after the discovery and widespread use of insulin for treatment of diabetics. Manfred Zockel developed insulin-induced hypoglycemia for the treatment of schizophrenia in the 1930s. When Zockel induced hypoglycemia in patients, it resulted in a convulsion similar to the convulsions induced by electric shock treatment. And although Zockel did not believe the convulsions were therapeutically necessary, he still thought that there was something to inducing these convulsions, putting the patients into a coma, and then bringing them out with an intravenous drip of glucose. They would end up in these, like, kind of lucid states. And if you did this five to six times a week for several weeks for several months, <laughs> sometimes the lucid states would extend, so you would just be permanently lucid. And this went on forever, so there must have been some amount of result that they were like, yes, this is useful, and you can use this on schizophrenics and, you know, depressives and people like that. But it didn't always work. Well, yeah, and even if it did, sending somebody into full seizure convulsion shock mode is dangerous. Yeah, it could fracture the spine. If we're going to look at the risk versus the reward mm -hmm. here, maybe the risk is worth it if it works 100% of the time and you don't have to torture people multiple times. Like if you did like one and done, maybe worth yeah. it. Yeah. But when you're subjecting people to this for months on end and it might work, excuse me? Yeah, it didn't always work. Sometimes these people would be institutionalized. I mean, they were eventually able to move on to electric shock treatment and people would be lobotomized after this. So this is a long history of malpractice and mental health. It's kind of like, who are you trying to find a cure for? Are you trying to find a cure for the people who take care of the schizophrenic person when they're in a paranoid right. state? Or are you trying to find a cure for the paranoid person? No, that's a great way of looking at it. With lobotomies, the electric shock, and this, I had no idea this was even a thing. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it was very much so for the caretaker and not for the patient. Yeah. Well, and in addition to it just being torturous, it had a mortality rate of about 1%, and so you could die being put into these insulin-induced comas. <laughs> and you could end up with permanent brain damage because you end up with swelling of the brain if you're not... If, if you're messing with insulin, I was going to say if you're, like, monitoring it correctly, but how do you properly monitor giving somebody an excess amount of insulin? Like, it's just... It's a bad idea all around. And most patients emerged from these treatments grossly obese because you're just fucking with how their pancreas works. 
When somebody is a comatose depressive and you're trying to get them on the up and up, doing that to them, same with modern day psychiatric drugs, when people gain weight, when they're already depressed and having a bad time, it's not good. Yeah. It's not good. It's like, let's just add another bullshit problem to the list. So was it, I mean, so did they stop that? Was there somebody that finally shook that doctor and was like, hey, hey this is a bad idea? I think that it just fell out of practice. I think now we do see it as being maltreatment, but it was being used up through the early reintroduction of electric shock treatment because we were using electric shock treatment back when Benjamin Franklin was alive. He was actually an advocate for electric shock treatment. If you look up the history of it, they try to say that it's really not a thing until the 1930s, but that was when it was reintroduced as a treatment. And that was after all of these other convulsion therapies mm. that we were like, hey, there might be something to this. And then as an alternative to electric shock treatment, you get lobotomies. And then as an alternative to lobotomies, which we started to see as malpractice and things like that, we got antipsychotics, which were being developed concurrently with lobotomies happening. But after they were developed, we were like, you know, we don't have to put ice picks in people's brains anymore. Why don't we do Thorazine? But then Thorazine is a whole nother thing because now you're just zonking people out again. And sure, they're not grossly obese or anything, but who is it helping? No, it's for the caretakers. Mm -hmm. When I was at an inpatient psychiatric facility, we called it the Thorazine shuffle. Mm, yeah. You don't get to talk to somebody. They're literally just gone. And they're still doing electric shock too. They are still doing electric shock. They don't induce the coma with insulin anymore. They usually just do a general anesthesia, I think. But yeah, I think it just fell out of practice. I don't think that anybody was yeah. like, hey, this is maltreatment. I think that we just moved on to the next form of maltreatment. <laughs> that's a very, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. So when they are using the insulin to put people into these hypoglycemic attacks, mm -hmm. What is that like? Hypoglycemia is defined as blood glucose levels low enough to cause symptoms and signs, less than 55 milligrams per deciliter in healthy adults. But in diabetics, blood glucose less than 70 milligrams per deciliter is considered to be hypoglycemia. So it depends on who you're mm. talking about. Confirmation of hypoglycemia is confirmed by three things. It's called Whipple's triad. The first is signs and symptoms consistent with hypoglycemia. The second is low blood glucose that you can quantify. And the third is resolution of signs or symptoms after the rising of blood glucose by mm. intravenous glucose, something like that. But if irreversible brain damage has occurred, the third criteria would be unlikely to be fulfilled. So it seems like it can be kind of a tenuous thing. You really have to just be able to identify the signs of hypoglycemia. And sooner rather than later, because it's one of those things like if you go past this certain point, this certain threshold, mm -hmm. there is no coming back. If you end up with permanent brain damage, there's no coming back. Yeah. They can level out your blood glucose, but you still have permanent brain damage. So what are the signs and symptoms of a hypoglycemic attack? Is that what you could call it? Or is there a better word? It, it could probably be called a hypoglycemic event or just hypoglycemia. Okay. So what does that look like? It can have varied presentation. You could have loss of consciousness and seizures. You could have hypotension and brachycardia. You could have diaphoresis with brachycardia and hypotension. And then they might look for something cardiovascular at that point rather than it being insulin. And so mm. you have to take all of this into consideration and then also measure the blood glucose. I've heard of hypertension before, but I don't really fully understand what that is. What is the hypo 
not hyper, but hypotension that you were talking about and this brachycardia. Hypotension is low blood pressure. Hypo always means low, so hypothermic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hypertension is high blood pressure. Got it. And then brachycardia is a slower than normal heart rate, usually less than 60 beats per minute, and that causes a reduction of oxygenated blood. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I know tachycardia is the other side, is when it's the too fast. Oh, I feel so smart. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. No problem. Okay. So hypoglycemia in a non-diabetic patient can be due either to endogenous or exogenous hyperinsulinemia, which is too much insulin, right? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yep. Hyper too much, hypo too Mm -hmm. low. Got it. Hyperinsulinemia can lead to excess salt and water retention in the body. So you can end up with dilutional hyponatremia. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. (laughs) The hyponatremia was from the sodium chloride episode, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm so smart, you guys. And so then you have this intracellular (laughs) shift in potassium and phosphorus. You can end up with hypokalemia, hypophosphatemia. So you just end up with all of these fluids building up essentially. And that's 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 bad. bad because you're... Salts are getting all out of whack. That's how you can end up going into a coma and having seizures. They think is that the fluid in your brain builds up. And so it causes Mm. brain damage that way. Okay. And there was something else that you said that I want to see if I can use my big old brain on to understand what it means. So you were saying that the exogenous hyperinsulinemia... That is when somebody is putting too much insulin into their body. So it's coming from an exo, external force. So is the endogenous happening for some reason your body is out of whack and so your body is making too much insulin? Yes, yeah. So you have an endogenous amount of insulin. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to – I get a gold star today, guys. Okay. All right. So we know what those are. So we're, we've got, when you have too much insulin, whether it be your body doing it or an external force putting it mm-hmm. in, it causes more than just your insulin to go out of whack. Yeah. Your sodium chloride, the potassium, the phosphorus, all the things, this is bad news. Yes. Bears. Yes. Does that make it hard for medical professionals to tell the difference or to tell the root source of what's going on? I think that it can. Yeah. In the sodium chloride episode, we were talking about the signs and symptoms of that. Mm -hmm. And they're different than the signs and symptoms of this. So it's like if they're all presenting, I imagine it would be hard for a medical professional to say, this is what's going on. Let's attack this first. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would think that the difference if for some reason you and I are nurses now and we see somebody who who has a headache and who clearly has something going on neurologically, maybe they've just gone into a coma. I think that the difference you would look for is were they attempting to vomit? Did they have any of those signs of hypernatremia Mm. or did they immediately go into a coma? Because that's usually the sign, at least with exogenous insulin, that you get the insulin and then immediately it's too much. And so then you end up, you have seizures and you go into a coma, things like that. Whereas with the hypernatremia, it happens more slowly and you tend to have Mm -hmm. more of those gastrointestinal signs first. So now that we know what insulin does to the body, if we're talking about it on this show, I'm going to assume that somebody has used insulin for nefarious purposes. Would I be correct in that assumption? You are absolutely correct. Okay. (laughs) Take me on the journey. 
Robert Edwin Edge Sr. was 82, and he lived in West Virginia, in Clarksburg. He had served in the U.S. military. He joined the Navy after graduating from high school in 1952. He was stationed in Oklahoma and California before finishing at a naval station in Norfolk, Virginia with an honorable discharge. He worked at the Westinghouse for 36 years, and then he retired. By the time that he was 82 years old, he was battling with dementia. And so his family had chosen to put him in the Lewis A. Johnson Veterans Affairs Medical Center of Clarksburg. And unfortunately, that is where Robert Edwin Edge Sr. passed away in 2017. Robert Kozul was also from West Virginia. He had served in the United States Army, the 11th Airborne, as the 544th Field Artillery Battalion Battery B parachutist. He and his wife worked at the Westinghouse for more than 35 years together, and he retired there as a machinist first class in 1989. He also was admitted to the Veterans Affair Hospital in Clarksburg on January 18th, 2018, after he fell at home. He was discharged three days later, and then he was readmitted on January 26th after complaining of vision loss. An MRI mm. determined that Robert Kozel had suffered a stroke. Oh. Shortly after he had his stroke, he died in the middle of the night. What was strange about his death was that his plasma draw found that his glucose level was at 27. And I already said that a healthy blood glucose level was between 70 to 120. Yeah, that's a big difference. Yes, and it's significant because Robert Kozel did not have diabetes. Huh, mm -hmm. okay. Things are starting to get a little suspect. Right. And so, in September of 2019, Robert Kozel Sr.'s body was disinterred and an autopsy was performed at the Dover Air Force Base. This investigation was performed by an expert endocrinology consultant for the U.S. government, and the consultant concluded that the hypoglycemia that he experienced just before his death was caused by the unnecessary administration of insulin. Question. Yes. We talked about insulin being used in the early 1900s for psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. Other than diabetes and that period of time when it was used for the shock treatment, essentially, is there another reason that insulin would be used for somebody who's not a diabetic? No. Okay. March of 2018, George Shaw was admitted to the VA hospital after he had a flare-up from a previously diagnosed heart condition. He was doing well, and then all of a sudden he had a fall in the hallway, and there was a deterioration of his entire body. No one could explain mm -hmm. why he suddenly became dizzy or why his blood sugar had suddenly dropped. 19 days after being admitted to the VA hospital, he died in their hospice care in April of 2018. Starting to see a pattern. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just about to say. I am seeing a pattern forming, and... My true crimey brain already wants to point the fingers at a nurse or a doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, a probe into the deaths was opened by the VA Inspector General in July of 2018 after nine patients were diagnosed with unexplained low blood sugar. In 2018, a doctor at the VA hospital reported a concern about the deaths of patients who had suffered unexplained hypoglycemic episodes, which is linked to a surplus of insulin in the body. The doctor's report prompted an investigation and culminated in federal charges against a nurse's aide working at the VA hospital. The deaths were reported to the VA inspector general, and the nurse's assistant was fired. So she's not even a nurse. She's not even a nurse. So is she like a CNA kind of a deal? I don't even think so. I mean, she might be. Like but... she was like an orderly, essentially? Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. And so okay. She was transferred from patient care in June of 2018, and then she was fired. But many of the family members of the patients who died are wondering why her deeds weren't detected sooner by hospital staff and how she was able to get her hands on things because as a nurse's aide, she didn't have the authority or the authorization to administer any sort of medication, especially not something that you have to inject into a patient. Yeah, learning that she's a nurse's aide, that's also one of my questions. And I'm also sitting here thinking like, this was going on for two years and over how many patients did you say? Over 20? By the end of the investigation, they determined that there were probably 21 patients who had been impacted by the actions of this one woman. And I would say that would be significant in a hospital in general. Yeah. However, all of these patients were in the same ward, Ward 3A. Yeah, even in the same hospital, let alone the same floor. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, the same ward. Yeah, that is suspicious. Mm -hmm. I've been at the hospital too many times. Like in in most hospitals, you have to have access to medications. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if I were the family members, I'd want to know how the hell she got this too. I've had nurses, like CNAs tell me that they couldn't even get me ibuprofen, not even a narcotic. They didn't have the access to get ibuprofen. Right. So why the fuck did she? Right, yeah. They had this form of patient care called one-on-one vigils. And so she was the only one who was attending to these patients just to make sure that they were okay overnight because they were patients that were severe enough that they needed to be monitored and they weren't ready to be discharged, but they weren't like ICU Mm. patients. They were patients like the first man who was suffering dementia or the second person who was concerned about the flare-up of his heart condition. A lawsuit was filed in March of 2018, which accused the hospital of failing to securely store insulin and prevent its access by unauthorized personnel. And that was related to the death of George Shaw. But the first lawsuit to be filed was from the daughter of retired Army Sergeant Felix Kirk McDermott. Her name was Melanie Proctor, and she argued that the employees of the VA center knew or should have known that something was wrong. I feel like they should Mm -hmm. have. I think they should have too. And this is coming after there was a whole lot of shit going down at the VA and moving around of major parts and moving around of people at the top. So there was just a lot of internal bullshit going on at the VA. And it trickled down to individual patients is like the ultimate tragedy here. Felix McDermott, a Vietnam vet, had been admitted to the VA hospital because of aspiration pneumonia. And his family thought that he died of natural causes in the hospital, only to find out later in August of 2018, when the FBI showed up at their house to conduct this investigation, that he, in fact, did not die of natural causes. So even the family didn't know how he actually died? I don't know that the original autopsies were necessarily looking for some of the information that would have pointed to these deaths. Felix McDermott died because of one massive injection of insulin. But I'm not sure if all of the patients did. She might have given smaller doses to other patients. She might have given Mm. insulin to some diabetic patients, perhaps. And so they just ended Mm -hmm. up suffering from it but not dying. And maybe that's how that doctor noticed what was going on. Mm. But Mm -hmm. not all of these patients were diabetic. And so I don't think they were looking for a death associated with diabetes in these patients. They were just sudden deaths Mm -hmm. of people in their 80s and 90s, which does happen. You do just have... Sudden death because you have some sort of injury that places you in the hospital. Right. Sometimes it's just that time, Mm -hmm. you know, but still Mm -hmm. to not look into it enough to tell the family or, and I mean, I guess we don't know if they knowingly gave the family false information or not. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I I don't think that they did, but who knows? 
Who knows? I'm sitting here and like, I mean, yes, this is a true crime podcast. And so I'm going to have some presumptive things going on. But I'm sitting here like after hearing about three of these things happening, Mm -hmm. there's a pattern. Mm -hmm. After it happens 20 times, Mm -hmm. you're being negligent. They had all these lawsuits and they had this internal investigation conducted and the FBI got involved and the U.S. attorney Bill Powell got involved. And so then finally... Finally, they unsealed everything to take it to court, and they named 46-year-old Rita Mays as the person behind these deaths. They said that there were at least 11 fatalities, and so they were able to get all of this information over the course of their investigation by exhuming bodies. And not all of the people who died could be exhumed because many of the patients had chosen to be cremated. So Uh. it could have been 21. They initially named 11, and she pled guilty on July 14, 2020, in eight of those deaths. Oh, wow. So this just happened. This just happened. I mean, she was working there from 2015 to 2018, and it seems like the deaths occurred between 2017 and 2018, but it just came out last summer that it was this Rita Mays woman. Well, that's also, I mean, with the military and the government being involved, like, hurry up and wait kind of a thing. So she pled guilty to eight of them. What happened to the other three? I think that maybe there wasn't enough information to to confirm. Mm, so she didn't want to cop to it? Uh, something like that. So she was charged okay. with seven accounts of second-degree murder and one account of assault with intent to commit murder of an eighth person. Does that mean that there was a survivor? No. He ended up dying, too. So all of these patients died. Ugh. Yeah. In October 2020, the U.S. government settled a civil suit naming Mays and blaming oversight failures at the VA hospital for the similar death of a ninth patient. And additional suits are pending. So this is still ongoing. In the eight cases that she pled guilty to, do we know if she's been sentenced yet? She is still awaiting sentencing. So it's not that they can't line up the deaths with her work Mm -hmm. schedule or anything like that. It's just that because of the pandemic... Her court date keeps being pushed back because Mm, she's looking at life sentences for each of the deaths and then a 20 years max sentence for the assault charge that did end in a death. And so they want to make sure that they have all the information that they need and civil suits are still coming in. But she won't be officially sentenced until April of this year. Okay, so we'll have to do an update in a future episode. Mm -hmm. I'd like to imagine that she's not out and about right now. Do we know if she is being held without bond, if she's being detained at the moment? She is being detained. I don't know if she has a bond and what it's been set at. It would probably have Mm -hmm. to be pretty high since she's looking at seven counts of murder. Yeah, I would imagine. This is just so tragic at how many people. Mm -hmm. I guess I just love knowing what makes people tick. And I just really just want to ask her, the fuck were you thinking? Why? Yeah, well, and that's what all of the families are asking. They're asking why. But all the interviews and all of the questioning that's been done of her, they keep saying that they don't have a reason. She hasn't given them a sufficient reason for why she acted this way. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose that that ends up being the case with a lot of angels of death, if you will. I don't even know if we want to call her that because she wasn't even a fucking nurse. No. So, nope, you don't get, okay, you don't get that, Rita. Sorry. But with many of angels of death, they often don't have a reason Mm -hmm. from what I've seen. It's just like this 
I just want to kill to kill. So I, I don't imagine that it would be anything more than that because I mean, these all just sound like elderly people who were just doing their thing, mm -hmm. you know, like living out the last years of their life the best they could. Mm -hmm. You already know I have my reservations about the government, but still like we're supposed to take care of the people who went out and supposedly fought for our country and this is how they're being treated. Yeah, and beyond that, like, whether they were involved with wars, whether any of that, like, human beings mm -hmm. deserve human decency. I think that's part of the upset is that would they have been treated with greater human decency and would this have been stopped sooner before the deaths of 21 people possibly? There's been 10 other wrongful death lawsuits filed in this case that have been just settled out for millions of dollars but would that have had to have happened if they were at a VA hospital and if the government didn't get involved and if there wasn't all of this lack of oversight for the people who are working at the hospital would this have happened if they were just at a regular hospital I mean pure speculation obviously I don't know mm -hmm. but in my humble opinion I don't think so because in all of the civilian hospitals that I've been in, like I said, they wouldn't have access to insulin. They wouldn't be able to do that. Right. So if we want to look at like just this case specifically, I don't think that Rita would have been able to get away with killing mm -hmm. these patients in a civilian hospital. I kind of don't think she would have either. And that's tragic. It's tragic that these people were murdered because of where they were and like you said the lack of oversight and this evil bitch just had a hankering for murder mm -hmm. the eight patients that rita mays has pled guilty to the deaths of are robert edwin edge senior who died on july 20th 2017 robert kozel who died on january 29th 2018 archie edgel who died on march 24th 2018 george shaw who died on march 26th 2018 a patient only identified by his initials WAH on April 4th, 2018, Felix McDermott, who died on April 9th, 2018, and Raymond Golden, who died on June 4th, 2018. She also pled guilty to the assault with intent to commit murder against a patient who was later identified as Russell R. Posey Sr. on June 18th, 2018. Wow. She was busy that year. She must have been more busy Ugh. if they think that there are 21 deaths they could possibly yeah. attribute to her if they had the evidence. I, I hope that the other families of her victims get justice sooner rather than later. I hope so. I mean, people were pretty upset that they pushed back her sentencing date because she was supposed to be sentenced in February and now she won't be sentenced until April. So people are pretty upset about that. But it seems like the government is already starting to settle out the civil lawsuits. So sad. So I guess what we've learned about insulin is that it, it really doesn't take much mm -mm. for it to have those devastating effects on the body. Once again, I didn't know that people were out here killing people <laughs> with shit like this. Be kind to other humans. Don't take insulin that isn't yours. Don't give insulin that isn't needed. And take your insulin when you do need it. And if you are thirsty all of the time and you're going to the bathroom a lot, a lot, go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Fuck Martin Shkreli, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> Release the Wu-Tang album, you piece of trash. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. Thank you.